This audio recording is presented by New City in downtown Orlando. Our sermon text is the 117th chapter of the book of Psalms. Praise the Lord, all nations, extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love toward us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. So as I said this morning, we're beginning a a new series on this Old Testament book of Psalms. And and as I said before, we're going to try and present you Uh, a representative uh, sampling, if you will, of the book. What we mean by that is this. The Psalter, the book of Psalms, is a collection of 150 uh, individual poems, uh, individual songs. And and as you read through the Psalter, you're going to see that every psalm, every individual psalm, has a unique contribution to make uh, to God's word. But you're also going to find that the various uh, psalms can be categorized into uh, what scholars call genres. So each of these various genres uh, are going to provide for us in this series an example on how to worship God uh, in the various circumstances that we all encounter in life. Uh, You may not know this, but from 400 BC roughly, excuse me, 1400 BC roughly uh, to 400 BC, the Psalter was developed uh, over that uh, millennia of time. And in that time, from Moses all the way to those who came back from the exile, in that time, God was writing for his people, through his people. He was writing them songs of worship as they experienced the ups and downs of his salvation in their life. So again, our hope in this series is just to cover a psalm or two from all the various genres, or at least the major genres, so that in time both as we learn these and as we exit and and go into our lives, that that in time we'll know the biblical, uh, which is the personal and the emotional response that is best suited for whatever uh, we're going through. Uh, As we go through this series on the Psalms, I think we're going to learn this, uh, that worshiping God does not simply equal praising God. Worshiping God does not simply and only equal praising God, but praise is fundamental to and pervasive in our worship. I'll explain it to you this way, just to give you a sense for what we're going to try and do in this series. When we experience loss or pain, we can worship God in and through a psalm of lament. That's a genre. A lament that almost always, though, includes at least some element of praise. Or when we sin, when we blow it big time, privately or publicly, uh, we can worship God, we can draw near to God in and through a psalm of repentance. But in that psalm, there will be included elements of praise. Or when we see corruption and injustice, or in the world in which we live, when there's sickness and natural disaster, we can worship God in and through uh, what are categorized as kingship or royalty psalms where we not only praise King Jesus, but we in fact yearn for Jesus to advance his rule and reign more and more. So again, to be redundant, uh, we want to cover the various genres of the Psalms in order to learn how to worship in every circumstance of life. Okay? So with that said, we begin today uh, with the foundational, the most pervasive, and the, and the climactic genre uh, in the Psalter. That, that is the genre of, of praise. If you don't know what praise is, I'm going to define it 
very simply for us in a moment. Psalm 117 is the shortest psalm in the Psalter. It's the shortest chapter in the Bible. And it's a great example of a psalm of praise in that it, like all of the psalms of praise, first starts with a call to praise and then moves out into a list of God's attributes as to why we're worshiping him in praise. Very simple outline this morning. The call to praise, the reasons for praise, and the one we praise. All right, so first, the call to praise. Look uh, at, the, uh, at the text as provided in your worship folder, I believe, in the insert. Verse 1, this is the call to praise. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples. Uh, to extol is to praise with increased enthusiasm. So the psalmist is saying, once you've praised him, begin again with more vigor and more passion. Most simply, to, bur- to praise is, is to boast or to brag. This is a definition for praise. It's to assess something or someone as valuable and then to express that assessment. And so while while the word praise may be foreign in our vernacular, in our vocabulary, the act or the practice of praising is not foreign to us at all. A a young lover might muster the courage to say to a girl, you're very precious to me. I love how caring and how witty and how beautiful you are. We always say I love something about you before we say I love you. That's just a little clue. Women, you're welcome. An, an employer might say to his best employee, you're, you're crucial to this company. You're loyal, you're creative, you're dependable. You see, those are examples of how we use praise with one another. But verse one is slightly different. Uh, in the Psalms, the psalmist is gonna often uh, praise God directly in the lyrics and he's going to often tell himself to praise God. But, but more than anything else, the psalmist is going to tell other people to praise God. It's a call to praise In Psalm 117, verse 1, the psalmist commands all nations and all peoples to praise the Lord. He's going to tell us why in verse 2, but he's confident in verse 1 that as soon as he explains why in verse 2, everyone will exuberantly praise his Lord. Again, this term, a call to praise, may be foreign to our ears, but the practice of calling others to praise is not utterly foreign to us. Uh, If you think about it, this is essentially what a cheer leader does for a sports team. Not only do they cheer themselves for a victory, but they tell others to cheer for the team in victory. Uh, The same young lover might say in time at an engagement party, consider my incredible fiance. She's caring. She's witty. She's beautiful. He assesses her as precious. He expresses that assessment to her. And then he is calling other people uh, to join him in the praise of her. The same employer might say at at the year-end celebration, let's give a round of applause, which is a biblical concept too. Let's give a round of applause to our employee of the the year. They're, They're crucial to this company. They're loyal. They're creative. They're dependable. Assessment, expression, invitation. So first, and that point was much quicker than the second. First, and y'all are dead this morning. Are you worn out from all the pastels last week? That's one thing I hate about Easter, is everybody takes the next week off, whether you're here or not. In the genre of praise, the psalm of praise, they all begin like 117. There's a call for you to praise God. And then it's always followed by reasons for that praise. Look, look in verse two. Here are the reasons for praise. 
For, since, because, in all uh, of the Psalms of praise in this genre, in the 150, they're all going to say, praise him. And then they're going to use this little word, for. Great is his steadfast love towards us. And the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. I've, I've given a couple of subpoints to this point, And they are up on the screen, I believe, behind me. Praise the Lord for this. In him is the faithfulness we all want. And the steadfast love we all need. All right, you have to be awake. This next little section is a little heady, but it's incredibly important. So stay with me. If you see your neighbor falling asleep, feel free to do whatever you feel necessary in love to help them wake up. All right? All right, pay attention. The, the original Hebrew words that are here translated in the English as steadfast love and faithfulness, they include what we think of when we hear these English words, but of course they're not limited to our current understanding of the English words. And as we begin to unpack these, you're going to see that these two words mean way more than, than what we first presume. And further, as we begin to unpack them, as we begin to explore them, they're going to seem at times to be at odds with one another. And as we unpack the the various realities of these words, we're going to begin to wonder, can both of these be true at the same time? They're they're going to create tension in us that's going to have to be resolved. So we're going to dig in. Let's, let's, Let's dig in, and I think you'll see what I mean. First, in him is the faithfulness we all want. This Hebrew word that's translated faithfulness most simply means truth. The most literal translations like the, the, the New American Standard or the King, the King James Version, they're going to say the truth of the Lord endures forever. It means real. It means true. It means being true to who you are. It means to be a truth teller and a promise keeper, which is where we get the idea of being reliable or being faithful. When, when we hear that God is faithful, when we hear that our minds, or my mind at least, tends to think about the, those promises uh, in the Bible or those attributes of God uh, um, that, that, that I like the most. When I hear he's faithful, I, I tend to think that he's going to keep his promise to be there for me and to never leave me. I tend to think uh, he's reliable when he says he'll provide for me. I, I tend to think he's trustworthy when he says he'll defend me. I, I tend to think he, he's a truth teller. So I can know that my sins really are mercifully forgiven. And as I said, uh, what pops into our minds first is part of what the psalmist means when he says God is faithful and we should praise him. But this biblical word, this, this attribute of God, it means so much more. Think about it with me. If faithfulness means true to who you are, and if faithfulness means promise keeper, then you have to include in faithfulness all of the promises that God has made in his scripture, which include... I will bless the righteous, but I will curse the wicked. Evil deeds must be paid for. Sin will be dealt with in judgment and wrath. I I will be near to my people forever, but I will eradicate all evil and those who do evil. And I will establish a new city in which justice, righteousness, and holiness dwell. You see, we, we hear God as faithful to his character and, and God as a promise keeper. And our minds run to a portion of his promises and a portion of his character. But, but this word for faithfulness uh, means not only that God is merciful and so his promise of mercy can be trusted, but that God in his essence is just. And therefore he will faithfully follow through on his promise to bless the righteous and curse the wicked. 
Faithfulness in verse two uh, does mean that God in his being is gracious father. He, 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 he's promised to love us like beloved little children and that promise can be trusted. But also this word faithfulness means that God in his being is divine warrior. His, his promise to punish evil and to get rid of evil has to be trusted as well. You see, this word for faithfulness isn't so much about God's faithfulness to us as it is God's faithfulness to himself. It's, it's, let's say this this way. It's not only about God keeping uh, the promises that, that we tend to like, but God keeping all of his promises. And so can you begin to see that if we begin to unpack uh, these attributes, if we begin to unpack all that faithfulness means, it's, it certainly includes what we initially thought, but, but it certainly includes a lot more. And can you begin to see that as we unpack them, we're going to begin to experience tension in our minds. We're going to ask questions like, how can all of this be absolutely true all the time? How can God be merciful and just? How can God be faithful to, to his promise to forgive my sins and, and faithful to his promise to punish my sins at the same time? So before we sort of add to that tension by talking about steadfast love, I want to tell you why I entitled this subpoint the faithfulness we all want. I believe that at the core of our being, we not only want God to be faithful in regards to the promises that we tend to like at first, I believe deep down inside, we want God to be faithful to every one of his promises, even the ones that are hard to hear. At the core, we want God to be, and we want God to promote righteousness, holiness, and justice. Even though I'm not righteous, I'm not just, and I'm not holy in and of myself, I know at my core, I want God to be absent of evil. I want God to do something about evil. And I want God to create a world in which there is no evil. I'll I'll show you this in three ways. First, most simply, when we hear of injustice, we hate it. When we hear that, that the laws are intentionally written in a way that, that, that advantage the rich and the powerful to the disadvantage of the poor and the weak, we hate it. When we hear that, that one in power will take a bribe from the rich in order to keep the rich from being justly treated, it just drives us crazy at the core. Second, one of my children this week was reduced to, to tears because their teacher, at least from their perspective, did not punish a student who clearly broke a classroom rule that my child has been punished for in the past. Tears. When young children see injustice, at least from their perspective, it really bothers them. I know that my children don't have the capacity to truly understand justice, to truly understand the complexities of life and the complexities of what might be going on in that teacher's heart. But that doesn't change the fact that one of the most frequently used phrases in the child's vocabulary is, that's not fair. The heart of the child shows that from the very beginning of life, we want justice, we want righteousness, we want fairness. In fact, we want holiness. Third, I presume that you saw this week that James Holmes sought to plead guilty to the murder of a dozen people in a Colorado movie theater last July. And he was trying to plead guilty because he wanted to avoid uh, the death penalty. And the district attorney uh, rejected that offer and said, quote, 
For James Egan Holmes, justice is death. And by and large, polling data shows that the country overwhelmingly agrees with the district attorney. It's my experience and it's my understanding that every attribute of God offered in the Bible is ultimately an attribute that we'd want God to have if we would just sit down and think about what life would be like if he didn't have it. The psalmist is saying, praise God for his faithfulness that endures forever. He is who he says he is and he'll keep every promise he's made to us. But then also extol God all peoples for great is his steadfast love towards us. And so if you just hit the pause button on that line of thinking in regards to faithfulness, the psalmist says that his steadfast love and his faithfulness reach the heavens. So we've in some, in some senses explored this faithfulness. Now we're going to think about what is steadfast love? Steadfast love is essentially this, merciful grace. There, there's a huge moment in the Old Testament story, in in Exodus 34, where God is giving his personal name to Moses, where God is defining who he essentially is to Moses. Listen to it in Exodus 34, six. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Steadfast love and truth. The exact two words in Psalm 117.2. The reasons for praise. And so in understanding what steadfast love means, let's go back to the story wherein God first said, I'm a God of steadfast love. You're actually reading uh, parts of it now, again, in City Bible reading, as you read through the Old Testament together, as you read through Exodus. And in the coming weeks, you're going to continue to read of a stiff-necked, stubborn, disobedient people being led by a man with huge anger problems. And at the beginning of chapter 15, the Israelites are worshiping God for his sovereign goodness and his provision, saying, we will trust you no matter what. And then the very next story, they're grumbling and complaining because they can't get the food and the water they think they need in that moment. And then starting in chapter 20, God's going to give him his law. And for several chapters, he's going to explain what his law is. And he starts with the Ten Commandments. And and the first thing they say in chapter 24 is this, twice actually. I think it's verses 3 and 7. I don't have it here. but, But all the laws that God has spoken, we will do them. We will be obedient. And the very next time they speak in Exodus, the next time they show up in the story, they go to Aaron and they say to Aaron, would you make us some idols of gold? that we can worship, that can walk before us, breaking at least the first two of the big 10. Further, uh, Moses shatters the original two tablets of stone on which God wrote the 10 commandments. And God says, come back to me, bring two more tablets. I'm gonna write it down again. I'm gonna tell you my name. I'm gonna tell you who I am. I'm gonna define for you who I essentially am at the core of my being. Again, This is what God says in chapter 34, verse six. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious. Mercy is to not make someone experience the consequences due to them for their actions. Grace is to give blessing to someone that they do not deserve. The Lord, merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And then God keeps going in verse seven. We like to cut it off at verse six, but he keeps going in verse seven. He speaks of his steadfast love and he speaks of his faithfulness. In regards to my steadfast love, I'm gonna forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. But speaking to his faithfulness, 
I will by no means simply clear the guilty. Verse 7, I'm going to be a gracious God, but I'm not going to act like the sin and the rebellion did not happen. And so which is it? Grace or truth? Mercy or justice? Will God forgive my sins or will he bring to bear the judgment that I deserve for my sins? We're all selfish. We're all sinners. We all use people instead of love people. We all break God's laws and and don't do what he says to do and we do what he says to not do. We we all move out into life and and obey him for selfish motives instead of love for him or love for good, but, but out of a love for self. And so which is it? It's really important to a room full of sinners. It's both. Psalm 117, praise the Lord all peoples for great and strong is his grace towards us and, and, and the truth of the Lord endures forever. Grace or truth? Yes. Mercy or justice? Yes. Forgive my sins or punish my sins? Yes. How? Jesus. 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 The one we praise. The one we praise because in God there is faithfulness that we want and steadfast love we need. This is an incredibly hard um, biblical, but uh, this is an incredibly hard uh, biblical reality to illustrate, but it's, in, it's so pervasive throughout the scriptures that I frequently rack my brain. How can I tell you about a God that is just and holy, but about a God who is also merciful and gracious? Because we don't live like this and we don't see this. But the Bible says that in the gospel, in Jesus, he he both forgives our iniquities and he also by no means simply clears the guilty. In other words, payment has to be made. The best illustration I could come up with um, is one that I've used before, but it's been a while and it's just simply a Victor Hugo's Les Mis. This is not particularly fresh. You've heard it before. I'd ask for you to listen again. Jean Valjean is finally released from prison and and after receiving hospitality and love from Bishop Muriel, Valjean chooses to steal silverware and silver plates uh, from the church. And in the process, uh, Valjean assaults the man uh, who provided for him. He assaults the man who essentially gave him life when no one else would. So upon being arrested and, and facing the dire consequences of being a repeat offender, Valjean is taken back to the church. And if you know the book or if you've seen any of the movies, you know that the bishop not only acts as though and feigns as though he gave the silverware and gave the plates to Valjean, but he also indicates that Valjean was foolish for forgetting the candlesticks, which he gave him also. And then he forces Valjean to take everything he has. Incredible mercy. Valjean didn't pay for stealing the silver. Extravagant grace. Valjean keeps the riches of the silverware, the plates, and the candlesticks. Full justice. The bishop paid physically and financially. He was bruised and he was much poorer after the entire exchange. Think again about our call to worship this morning. If you have your worship folders, look at the front. John 1, 14 to 17. In Exodus, that's at the beginning of the Bible, God says that in his essence, he is abounding in, he is full of both grace and truth. 
In Psalm 117, we're told that the, the peoples will praise God if they see and to the extent that they see that his, his grace is so massive towards us and yet his faithfulness will stay intact forever. And the original audience would have understood those words much better than us and they would have initially thought, how in the world is this possible? John 1.14 tells us, and the word, that's Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. That's his essence. Glory as of the only son, full of, abounding in grace and truth. I wonder if the Bible's trying to tell us something. Verse 16, for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. Sounds an awful lot like 117.2 in Psalms. Great and strong is his grace upon us. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus. How can God be merciful and just? Because Jesus, the righteous one who deserved blessing, chose to die for our sins. We receive mercy, and yet God's justice is satisfied. Incredible mercy. We don't pay the price for stealing the silver, if you will. Extravagant grace. We get all the riches of the one we stole from. Full justice. Jesus paid the price for our sins. And after the entire ordeal, he wasn't just bruised, he was brutally murdered on the cross. He wasn't just poorer, he was in naked, abject poverty on the cross. I want to conclude this morning with a thought or two again on our series in the Psalter. I said that this, 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 uh, in the introduction that this, this genre of praise is foundational to the Psalter. It's most pervasive in the Psalter, and it's the climactic genre in the book. And what I meant by that is this, so, so pay attention. While there are, technically speaking, more psalms of lament than there are psalms of praise, every psalm of lament except one possible, one possible exception, every psalm of lament has praise in it. Also, the Psalter, if you know, is divided up into five books. And every one of those uh, five books, the last psalm in that book, the last verse of that psalm is a psalm of, is a line, excuse me, of praise. 41, 13, 72, 19, 89, 52, 106, 48, 156. The Psalms of Lament are clustered towards the front of the Psalter and the Psalms of Praise are towards the end. In fact, the last five psalms in the Psalter are very clearly and obviously and only psalms of praise. Every line of the 150th psalm is a command to praise. The last verse of the entire Psalter is this, let everything that has breath praise the Lord, praise the Lord. And the question is, why is this? Because the Psalter is going to teach us how to worship in painful times, in times of loss, in confusing times in times of anxiety and threat. And while worship does not simply equal praise, praise is a part of all of our worship because God took on skin and we have received grace upon grace and Jesus was the full expression of grace and truth. If you've been around, you know that I've shared multiple stories about Joni Erickson Tata. Uh, she was a woman who was paralyzed from the neck down in a swimming accident and my, uh, for a season, my spiritual grandfather was very close to this family and knew 
Johnny well. And, and she's a strong believer. She's a brilliant author. Actually, if you go online, I prefer you not do it now because it's going to hurt my feelings. But if you go online and you just search her art, you'll be astounded at what she can draw uh, by only uh, holding uh, the pencil in her mouth. Uh, she's a gifted uh, public speaker. Uh, once at a book signing, Joni or Johnny uh, was quite fatigued and she was having a really hard time keeping uh, the pen in her mouth uh, that she was signing books with. And from what I understand from someone who was there, whenever um, uh, she was drawing or whenever she was writing or whenever she was giving an autograph, if the pen fell on the tray that was part of, of, um, of her wheelchair, if the pen fell on that tray that she wanted anybody to touch it, she wanted to retrieve it herself, she could retrieve it herself. That was her domain. That was her place where she had control, if you will. And so on this particular day, she was struggling and she was trying to use her tongue to retrieve the pen off of the tray. And when she got the pen in her mouth, she wouldn't keep, couldn't keep it in her mouth because she was just so tired. And she looked up sort of wanting to apologize. And she saw a woman a, a few spots back in line, rolling her eyes and getting annoyed. Uh, the woman at the front of the line getting the autograph said, you poor thing, just let me help you. And Tata later confessed she snapped. She lost it. She blew her top and she started crying. Nobody knew what to do. Everybody sat there for a few moments or what felt like minutes. And then they said, She closed her eyes and she started singing at the top of her lungs a hymn of praise to Jesus for his amazing grace and his steadfast love. Later, she told her friends and family, in the midst of others sinning against me, in the midst of sinning against others, in the midst of a life that can be so hard, I can always praise God for the gospel, grace and truth. We're far more wicked than we dare dream, but we're far more loved than we could ever imagine. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that in every moment of life, we can know that we're loved by you, that we have the Father's approval, that we're indwelt by your spirit, that in every moment in life, because of who you are and what you are done, uh, the Father is satisfied with us and we have everything available to us to be satisfied in you. We thank you, Jesus, that you have decided to create a place where there is no evil, there is no darkness, there is no pain, there is no wrong. We praise you that you're creating such a place and you're bringing us into it. Although we are the ones who have done wrong, have done evil, and have served ourselves. We thank you, Jesus, for this glorious gospel. We ask for your forgiveness for it becoming tired to our ears. We ask for your forgiveness for not glorying in it with exuberance as we come across it again. Holy Spirit, would you in this time come and fill our hearts with gratitude and fill our mouths with praise and would you let us see in Jesus the fullness of grace and truth that brings us grace upon grace. In his name we pray.